0: want to use your phone or your iPad. Uh, We're going to be looking at a few verses in Philippians chapter 1 this morning. Um, Our daughter Katie is getting ready to give birth to her first child, but our fourth granddaughter. And uh, she was due a week ago yesterday. So she's about eight days overdue and she's pretty miserable. And I've just taken it upon myself to send her a little advice every day on how to speed things up. And, um, so I sent her a text last night about 9.30, and I said, I think if you would just jump up and down, that would probably help the baby come. And she, well, I can't really say what she said in response. It wasn't very respectful of her father. Uh, but then again, I, I, I don't know anything about giving birth. I watched three of those happen, but I had nothing to do with them. I, uh, I, have, I have doctor next to my name, but it's not MD. Uh, so I was speaking about that, which I, I really am clueless. And as we think about moving into this new home in a few weeks, uh, there may be some of you that have gone through this experience before. But I haven't, I haven't talked to, I haven't had a whole lot of people come up to me and say, this is the third church I've helped build. Um, and so I think it's going to be new for all of us. And so we, we're not experts necessarily. Uh, what we have going for us is, I think, a passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, and to make an impact for him in our generation in our day and age, but how we go about that and what will happen and what will transpire is yet to be known, uh, because we're we're not quite there yet. So as we think about uh, this, we asked last week. You know, there's a lot of excitement, but we said there are probably some fears as well. We asked people to text their fears, and one of the things that's continued to come up, uh, time and time again, is I really hope the building doesn't become our focus. I really hope we just get consumed with with the building. Uh, another uh, Similar question was, I hope we don't become complacent uh, now that we, you know, have our own facility. And that's why I'm going to Philippians this morning, because like the Apostle Paul uh, was concerned for his friends, whom uh, he wasn't with anymore, he was actually in prison when he wrote this letter to them, and he wanted to make sure they were doing okay in the transition. He wanted to make sure that their, their feet were on the ground spiritually, so to speak, and they were continuing to be faithful to Christ. And I think, above all else, that's our hope. In our prayer at Green Tree as we go through this transition. So I think there'll be some, some helpful insights for us in God's word this morning. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the reading of God's holy, perfect word to him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Bob's story, just the simple, practical way that you got a hold of his life and brought him to faith. I thank you that he uh, confessed you this morning before all of us. Uh, I said, there's a lot of stuff I don't know, but what I do know is that Jesus died for me. And if I have faith in him, I will be saved for all of eternity. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for that grace which you extend to every lost sinner. Father, I pray that as we consider this morning what we are to look like as we follow you. What what should be our, the tone of our of our congregation, the the motives of our heart, the the desires uh, of our ministries. I pray that you would teach us, Lord. This is in in many ways it's this is a a message collectively for us as Christians, but it's certainly also a message for us individually, uh, as disciples of Jesus. It's also a message for those of us that. Uh, or like uh, Bob mentioned early on in his life, a seeker, someone who wasn't sure, who had not yet been convinced of the claims of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray for those of us this morning that are in that spot, and we're, we're kind of wondering, is this true? Is it real? Uh, would it be for me? No, so, Father, wherever we are in our in our journey today, I thank you that you've brought us here, that you are meeting with your people, and you are going to speak your truth into our lives. So, Lord, it's not the pastor's words that are important, they're, they're no more weighty than anybody else's. Uh, but your eternal word is perfect, and it is glorious, and it is for us, and it is that for which we pray. Forgive me my sin, don't let me stand in the way of your message, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me uh, give you the sermon in a sentence this morning. The grace of God in Jesus must not only flow into our lives, but through us to one another, And to the community in which we live. What Paul is explaining to the Christians in Philippi is this notion that the grace of God comes to us through Jesus. If you notice when I was reading he says over and over again and he does all the way through this letter to the Philippians in Christ or in Christ Jesus. He says that over and over because he wants us to understand that's how the gospel comes to us. That's how new life comes to us by faith in Jesus. If you are here this morning you're seeking and you're wondering about Christian faith, it's not about doing a bunch of good things. It's not about giving a bunch of money when other people won't give money. It's not about not cussing or not doing this or not doing that. It's about trusting what God has done for you because you are a sinner. You are a rebel because I know that because I am too. Being a sinner means we fall short. We don't do everything we should or we could to care for others. We also are rebellious. God says, go this way. We say, no, I'm actually going to go that way. And I've never met a person that hasn't said, yeah, I certainly do things wrong in my life. What do we do about that? Because we're accountable to God. Someday, you will stand before God, and He will ask you to give an account for your life. I don't want to be in that spot on my own with the hopes that maybe I'm a little bit better than some of you. I would rather know that there's redemption for me and that it is made through God's sacrifice. And so that's where Jesus comes in as the perfect son of God who does what? He takes away the sins of the world. Jesus took his perfection and gave it for our imperfection on the cross. And then God raised him from the dead, thereby validating that all who believe in Jesus can be saved. That's the message of the gospel. That's what flows into us. And we say that's the gospel of Jesus flowing in. But then what does it do? How does it ruminate in our hearts and our minds and our souls? And what does it produce by way of thinking and by way of outward behavior? That's what Paul is interested in this morning. I have four observations in this text. The first thing that Paul speaks of is a committed partnership. Look at verses 3. Through five, Three and four, Paul is talking about how he's always giving thanks. He's always praying for joy when he thinks about them. Why? Verse five, because of your partnership in the gospel, this message of Jesus, from the first day until now. So Paul's saying two things. The first there is what we've just mentioned, that this, this uh, forgiveness that comes through Jesus. The gospel has been personally accepted and embraced by individual people in the town of Philippi that they've heard the message and they've said, God's grace is for me. And they have put their faith in Jesus. But he's also speaking about what's happened as they've come to faith, which turned them to, to look at Paul and to look at one another and say, now how do we do this together so that more people can be saved, so that more people can hear the gospel message, so that more people can come to faith? In other words, there was created within their hearts in the moment at which they were saved, the heart of Jesus, and so they had an instant concern for others. They understood that God's grace was for everyone who believed, but not everyone believed. Why? Well, not everyone's heard the message. Well, how are they going to hear the message? How are they going to see the message? They're going to hear the message and see the message in our lives. We're going to be a witness for Jesus. There became this burning passion for the well-being of the souls of others. I've been reading recently, rereading a little bit about Hudson Taylor who was in the 1800s, was one of the pioneer missionaries to mainland China. And what was unique about Hudson Taylor was he embraced the culture in which he served. He didn't go in as an Englishman to to turn all the people that he met in China into Englishmen, but rather he went and he adopted their customs so that he could share the gospel with them. And here's what he wrote about the objective of his ministry. And listen to his passion, not only for Jesus, but listen to his passion for others. The China Inland Mission was formed under a deep sense of China's pressing need and with an earnest desire constrained by the love of Christ and the hope of his coming to obey his command to preach the gospel to every person. Its aim is, by the help of God, to bring the Chinese to saving knowledge of the love of God in Christ by means of itinerant and localized work throughout the whole interior of. Of China. And another quote, Taylor talks about how much he's doing for Christ and how little it seems like he's doing because of how much Jesus has done for him. You hear the passion in his voice. Why he had become a committed partner. He'd become a person who said, I'm I'm not just saved to be saved, but I'm saved in order to share with others. But Paul speaks not only of a committed partnership he also talks about the understanding that the beginning is not the end. Look at verse 6. And I am sure of this. He kind of interrupts his his train of thought. I am sure of this, that he, that being Jesus or that being God, who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. I think one of the things we we tend to not get wrong, but we we maybe kind of look at it a little bit off, is that salvation is the jumping off point. It's not the end game. Now, when someone comes to Christ, and Bob Bob a little while ago said, on on this date in June and this year, I became a Christian, and a bunch of people applauded. Why? Because you celebrate new birth. You celebrate someone coming to Christ. And that's important, and we should, but that's not the end. It's only the beginning. For how many hours or days or weeks, or months, or years that you and I have after we confess Jesus as Savior and Lord is the journey of discipleship. And in that journey, we need to understand that that we're going to progress, we're going to grow. Well, Sometimes it'll be one step forward, two steps back. Sometimes it'll be three steps forward, no steps back. But we're on the journey of growing in our faith. Jesus said when he called people to himself, come and follow me. Jesus didn't say, come and get saved and then become complacent. There's so many places that Jesus is working today. There's so many avenues that we can follow. It's almost, it's almost like the smorgasbord is too much from which to pick because there's so many places the Spirit of God is working and moving. But if we have a committed partnership and we understand that we're, we're along the journey, we'll be more active and we'll be joining Jesus in the areas where He is ministering. So Friday morning... About 6:30, I'm sitting in Spencer's Grill, in the back room, and the back room is about as big as, like, this corner of the stage. Okay, it's small, and there are three tables in Spencer's uh, back room, and I'm sitting at one. And another guy comes in and he sits down another one. And then his buddy joins him. Okay, so you hear the conversation, right? I mean, this is not in a you know, like if we all started talking, I couldn't you know I couldn't hear what Steve was saying. But you're right on top of each other. And the one guy starts off bemoaning the state of the Protestant church in America. I can't believe how it's just its going down the tubes and we don't stand for anything anymore and we're just just—we're losing it and it's going to cease to exist. And he's just going on and on about how terrible the Protestant church in America is. And his buddy joins in with him. Like this, it's awful. I can't believe we don't stand for anything anymore. We don't believe anything. Not, and they're going on and on and on. And then the guy says, but there are some exceptions to the rule. You know, right around the corner here, Green Tree Community Church is putting up a new building, and they, they love people, and they love Jesus, and they, and they stand for the right things. And I turned around and went, Tom Ricks, pastor of Green Tree Community Church. And I think they were both incredibly relieved that they had said some positive things. Because if they hadn't, I'd have said, Nathan Mosier, pastor of Green Tree Community Church. We have a problem, friends, and we have an opportunity. The problem is this. We have a great reputation in this community for being people that care, for being people that love unconditionally. And that can go to our heads, and we could blow the whole thing up. And we could ruin it pretty quickly because that's what we're capable of. But we also have a wonderful opportunity. And the opportunity is to understand that the beginning is not the end, and we have a ways to go. And God is moving us into this spot. Clearly he's moving it, or it wouldn't have ever happened. He's doing that because he wants us to continue on the journey with him, with humility of heart, and with a passion for others. So Paul says there's a committed partnership. Paul says this is, this is a journey. You're, you're not to the end yet. But he also says that there is a specific participation in, in which he calls out the, the Philippians. But I think it's also it's a, it's applied to us today. Look at, at verse 7. Paul says this, it's right for me to feel this way about you. Why? Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul starts off by saying, one of the ways I, the reason I feel so good about you guys is because you've been partakers with me in my imprisonment. So the Philippians probably heard that Paul had been sent to jail. This is what we call one of the One of the prison epistles that he writes from while he's incarcerated. Think of Martin Luther King's uh, letters from a Birmingham jail cell, right? So Paul's in prison. He's writing a letter, and the Philippians heard about it, and they've, they've probably sent a lot of help to him. Uh, in the Roman prison system, you ate whatever you could afford to eat. Nobody provided anything for you. If you didn't have family outside of prison, when they put you in prison, you starved to death because the Romans weren't going to give you anything. So in Paul's day, he's in prison. They hear about it, so somebody needs to take him some food. Somebody needs to take him some medical supplies. Somebody needs to look out for him. And the Philippians were doing that. And what Paul is saying is you understand that suffering is part of the Christian journey, and you've embraced that. You've understood it, and you're caring for me. You are partakers with me. You understood when Jesus said, I'm sick or I'm in prison, and you've come and you've visited me. And specific participation in the gospel ministry is joining in with the suffering of others. It's being there for people, being the hands and feet of Jesus when he is most needed. So Paul says that's a specific way in which you've joined me in my ministry, and I think it's instructional for us today. But he also says this, not only in my imprisonment, but in the defense of the gospel. That's the word from which the modern-day theologians get apologetics, uh, making a case, presenting an argument think about coming into the presidential season they're going to have all these debates right and and this person is going to make an apologetic for why they should be elected president and then this person is going to say no 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 no. let me make my apologetic for why i should be uh, elected president that's what paul's saying when you've defended the gospel you've stood up and you've had an intellectual thoughtful sharing of jesus's message can each one of us as disciples of Jesus say, I can articulate the gospel to others? I am not ever stand on a stage. Colette avoided it for 11 years. He probably won't be back for another 11. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll get him back in, in, in year 22. But he can sit down and talk to somebody. He can sit down and say, I know that Jesus loves me. I know that he died for me. Are we ready and, and, and understanding that a specific participation in the gospel of Jesus is, is having a thoughtful uh, willing, open heart to share with others. Paul said that's led them not only to partaking with his imprisonment, not only partaking with him in the defense of the gospel, but also the confirmation of the gospel. There's just a little twist there, and it's simply this. A public endorsement is what Paul's saying there, that that as they have made this confirmation, what he's saying is they've let it be known to all that they're following Jesus. So there's a lot of people in Kirkwood, that know that we're going to have a dog park? <laughs> How many people in Kirkwood actually know that we're following Jesus? And I'm not saying that to pit one against the other. I'm simply saying that we have an opportunity before us as we engage with people, whether they, they, they bring their dog to the dog park or they're walking by the building or or they live in our neighborhoods, whatever the case may be. We have the opportunity for a public endorsement to say, you know, we're following Jesus. This isn't about us being really good people or or smarter, better than others, but rather it's about understanding that the grace of God has been given to sinners like us. So Paul says, I acknowledge your committed uh, partnership. I want you to understand that the beginning is not the end. There's still the journey to go. And here's some specific ways in which you minister the gospel to me and to one another and to others. But he also says, and fourthly, that there is a growing affection from being connected with Jesus. Look at verses 9 through 11. Verse 8, which I'm not going to get into, he talks about his own affection for them. But then he says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of God. Paul says, I want your love to abound. I want it to grow more and more. An ever-growing passion for Jesus, but it doesn't stop there. It's not just a growing love for Jesus. I hope that today I love Jesus more than I did a year ago. And I hope last year I loved Jesus more than I did five years before that. But it's not just loving my Savior. It's not just loving my Lord. It's loving the things that he loves. It's loving the people that he loves. You hear me talk every once in a while about Cindy and her work at Kirkwood High School and doing some things to help her kids. I love those kids that she brings into our lives, not just because I went out looking for them, because I didn't. If she didn't have the job she has, I wouldn't know any of these students. But I've fallen in love with many of them over the years. Why? Because I love Cindy. Because she's my she's my bride. She's my wife. I'm going wherever she goes. I when Colette said, you know, you guys know where I was the next morning at 10:30. Every guy went, well, of course. Of course we know where you are right okay I get that so I love the things that Cindy loves maybe not garage sailing but beyond <laughs> that I love those kids because she loves them Jesus came and died for the world does that move our hearts to be passionate for that gospel to be shared with others but Paul says there's, there's a way that this love abounds I think it's important for us to just note this uh, for a couple minutes. In verse 9, he says that our love grows through what? Knowledge and discernment. In other words, kind of a, a serious study, right? Paying attention to the Word of God so I know and understand the truth. So I know the truth and I can apply it to my life. Paul says the way love grows is it grows by knowing God more intimately and by applying that knowledge to your life. That's how your life changes. So I heard a story this week about a, a guy that owned a barbershop. And he said to a friend of his, I, this, this kid comes in my barbershop every Saturday morning. And, and I, he's the dumbest kid I've ever met in my life, which is not a very nice thing to say about the kid. And, but he said, well, why do you say that? Why, why would you say that about this, this young fellow? He goes, well, you just come in Saturday and I'll show you. I'll, I'll prove it to you. So the guy comes in Saturday morning, sure enough, here comes a little little fellow, comes walking in, eight, eight nine years old, and, uh, and the barber says, hey, you know, come over here. He goes, uh, do you, and he takes in his hand, he's got a dollar bill in this hand, he's got two quarters in this hand. He says, so do you want this one dollar, or do you want these two quarters the kid reaches, takes two quarters and smiles and walks out the door. And he looks at his buddy. He goes, how dumb is that, that you would take 50 cents instead of a dollar bill? I mean, just what a dumb kid. The little guy leaves the barbershop. He's walking down the street. He bumps into this kid coming out of an ice cream store, licking an ice cream coat. He says, can I ask you a question? He goes, yeah, mister, what do you ask? He goes, how come you take the two quarters instead of the one dollar? He goes, well, because I know the day I take the dollar, the game's over. And there's no more ice cream. Right? <laughs> who was the smart one? Who was the dumb one? Right? He stopped and reasoned, and he thought, but he understood math, right? So somebody says, well, why do you believe in Jesus? God doesn't love people. Loving God wouldn't let people go to hell. There's lots of different paths to heaven. And why are you Christians? Do you have an answer? Have you given serious study and thought to the point so that you can give the answer based on our love for others? I don't study the scriptures just so I can learn more. Study the scriptures so that I'd be better prepared to share with the people for whom Jesus died. Paul says our love grows through serious study, but he also says in verse 10 that our love grows through serious study applied to life. Look at how he says this, right? And my prayer is that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now, if you're like me and you see excellent, pure, and blameless, you go, well, they stopped talking about me. (laughs) That, that, those are not words that are necessarily used to describe me. But remember this, you, the, the notion of excellence, the notion notion of perfection, of, of getting it just right. You're right, you're, you're not excellent. And, and purity, you know, without any guile in your heart. No, you, you're not pure. And blameless, looking at the outward actions of a pure heart that always do the right thing. No, you're not blameless. But you know what, neither am I. Nobody is, but Jesus was for you. And Jesus was for me. And he gives us that as a gift. So that even though I'll make mistakes in my journey, you know, the beginning is not the end. And I won't always practice purity in my life. And I need to confess that sin when it comes. And I won't always take the most excellent pathway. When I fall short of that, I need to acknowledge that before my father. But what Paul is saying here is that we can have confidence in what Christ has done for us in order to live in the knowledge of God's love. Not just knowing about it, but actually living in it, making choices that reflect the love and the grace and mercy of Christ. So Paul says love grows through serious study applied to life. But in verse 11 he takes it one step further and he says love grows through serious study applied to life. Producing the character of Jesus in us. Verse 11. That you may be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Think about the time of year it is now. It's, it's the harvest time. We don't talk in those terms that much anymore because we're urban more than we are more than we are rural. But if you go to the Kirkwood Farmers Market, there's a lot of produce. There's a lot of fruit out there because the harvest is coming in. Uh, we ate dinner with some friends on Friday night, and they had this amazing corn on the cob. And we asked them where they got it. They got it at the farmers market, and they found out that it just come in from Minnesota. So Cindy went to the farmers market yesterday and bought a crate of corn on the cob which we have our small group bible study and we're going to have them shuck it when they get to our house. <laughs> but the the fruit's coming in when we when we love God through knowledge and discernment. When we when we apply that to our life, what happens is the character of Jesus begins to live in us and things begin to happen meaning people more and more come to Christ. That God will use us to actually grow his kingdom. You see, because God doesn't have grace just flowing to us, but he has grace that flows through us so that it encourages one another, but it also says to the world, this savior is for you too. So whether it's some big grandiose thing God has moved us into 100 Kirkwood place or it's just simply keeping on the way we're going and making sure that we present the gospel to others, I don't know. I have no idea. I, I think a year from now, we're probably going to be pretty surprised at what's going on at Green Tree, and it'll probably be something that none of us really ever expected. But I know this, big or small, God calls us to what a theologian has called cascading grace, grace that flows over us and through us to others. I want to read you a quote from an author called N.T. Wright, and this book is named Simply Jesus. And I'm going to read the quote, and I'm going to read a little bit before you before the second half of the quote comes up on the screen. Because some of it you just need to listen to, and then part of it I think it would be good to, to see it as well. It, it's, it's not real, real long, but it'll take a minute or two to get through it. But this notion of God's grace and us following Jesus where he's going to care for the world, I think he really hits the nail on the head. Uh, and the guys at the screen will pull it up when it comes to the right part in the quote. The author says, there are millions of things that the church should be getting into that the rulers of the world either don't bother about or don't have the resources to support. Jesus has all kinds of projects up his sleeve and simply waiting for faithful people to say their prayers and get busy. Nobody would have dreamed that a truth and reconciliation commission of Desmond Tutu hadn't prayed and pushed And, excuse me, nobody would have dreamed of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission if Debs Mintutu hadn't prayed and pushed and made it happen. Nobody would have worked out the Jubilee Movement, the Campaign for International Debt Relief, if people in the churches had not become serious about the ridiculous plight of the poor. Closer to home, nobody else likely to organize a car shuttle to get older people to and from the stores. Nobody else is likely to volunteer to play the piano for a service at a local prison. Few other people will start a playgroup for children of single mothers who are still at work when the school day finishes. Nobody else, in my experience, will listen very hard to the plight of the isolated rural communities or equally isolated inner-city enclaves. No one else thought of organizing the street pastor scheme, which in my country at least has had a remarkable success in reducing crime and so on, and so on. And if the response is that these things are all very small in themselves and insignificant, I reply in two ways. First, Jesus did explain his own actions by talking about the smallest of all the seeds that then grows into the largest kind of shrub. And second, it is remarkable how one small action can start a trend. One theologian has called it cascading grace. Word gets around that a church in the next town has begun a particular project, and the good news story invites people to try something similar for themselves. That's how the hospice movement spread, transforming within a generation the care of terminally ill patients. Jesus is at work taking forward his kingdom project. Uh, Normally, at the end of my sermon, which is where we are, I would pray for us, but I've actually asked the elders if they would pray for our church. This morning, that we would um, take this truth, that God would take this truth and apply it to our lives. uh, So Jim Schmidt led us in prayer in the first service and Jim Bingley. It's Jim morning this morning. Jim's going to come and lead
1: us in prayer. Good morning. Would you pray with me? Cascading grace. Cascading grace grace. Father, this creates an image of a powerful waterfall with you as its source and with us at the bottom receiving rivers of living waters. Too often we don't use the gift of grace as you intend. We want to receive grace from you but not extend it to others. We feel wronged and we hold it against others for years, often with those we love the most. Lord, our our culture tells us that if we feel loss or pain, someone else must be at fault. Grace is a foreign concept. As we enter our new church home, we can either treat it like a closed fortress like a castle, complete with a moat and a drawbridge, where we can treat it like you want us to, as your gift to us, as God's house with its doors open to all. Father, we are broken and flawed. We feel that we are too small and insignificant to make a difference, but it's not about our own strength. As Paul said, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. At the bottom of a waterfall is a deep and peaceful pool. May we be a reflection of your grace and your mercy and your love. Amen.